Sometimes, when struggling, you need a tangible reminder that you're not alone. You Don't Fight Alone offers the YDFA kit, a small set of items for comfort, grounding, and serenity. Visit ydfa.org kits to get your own completely free YDFA kit. Please be advised. We will be discussing subjects that may not be suitable for all audiences and will include subjects that some will find challenging, traumatic, or triggering. Welcome to You Don't Fight Alone, a podcast sharing the stories of those of us successfully living with mental illness and how we got here. was 2003 was my rock bottom. I had uh, gone through my life, uh, first suicidal ideation and trying to attempt uh, to take my own life was when I was in the fourth grade. And I said this on the floor, uh, uh, I can't remember where I said this here in in the state Senate, um, was, you know, thinking about in the fourth grade how I want to end my life and going to my dad's gun cabinet and trying to take his gun, trying to load it, and here I am, nine, eight years old, and realizing I just couldn't do it, couldn't figure it out, uh, put everything away and told my mom that night what I had tried to do because I had so much self-loathing. And at that time, 1981, you just, there wasn't any resources, especially in a small town in Iowa where I was from. Uh, so going from that point through the rest of, through 2003, the, the way I was able to make it, and I still had other attempts or other um, ideation moments, and uh, getting from age eight to age 31 was, overachieving was being active and involved in everything I could be in was finding the things that I could find to cope Um, and so my lowest point came in 2003 because I had been so goal focused my entire life about doing so many different things that in 2003 I had no more goals I had just become a certified financial planner uh, just passed the certification and I was working for a company that said, great, uh, we're glad you, you passed, but we just want you to have the initials. And so my job was going to continue along the same path as it was, which wasn't making, to me, making a difference. And I had no more goals. I did not know what to do. And I, um, I hit bottom in 03. My name is Chris Kolker. I've been diagnosed uh, with depression and ADHD. Well, it took about 22 years to arrive at the diagnosis. Um, And it was my therapist and psychiatrist uh, back in 2000 and 
three when I was first diagnosed formally. Uh, I was not diagnosed with ADHD, even though my therapist told me as I was going through therapy for 10 years that I should go see this ADHD psychiatrist. Uh, because I had ADHD, I didn't go see him. I I'd never called. And I wound up calling the this, this person a month before he retired, um, seven years later. <laughs> and so I was formally diagnosed with ADHD in 2019. And because of our daughter, my wife and I, uh, we have a, a, a daughter who was going through a number of issues. She's young. And we did the checklist for her. And as we were doing the checklist, in our own minds, we were both answering it for ourselves. And we both realized we were both ADHD, so poor kids. So we have two daughters, and the, the oldest is ADHD for sure. The youngest hasn't, isn't old enough yet to get diagnosed, but, well, genetics. So uh, care and treatment at that time was, first of all, discussing my depression and working through major issues that were that were causing it or may have been causing it and then trying to find the right medication to help get me off the bottom because I had um, hit the bottom around that time in my life in 2003 and so we had been meeting I had been meeting with not only my uh, personal physician, but also with a psychiatrist who could diagnose, who could um, uh, prescribe, and I don't know how many different prescriptions I went through until I found one that I was on for probably a good 10, 15 years until I was diagnosed with ADHD, and so I've been off all antidepressants since being diagnosed with uh, ADHD uh, because the ADHD can lead to depression. Is really the whole turnaround, how it came about. It's Adderall. <laughs> it's Adderall, and um, it's trying to find the right dosage still to, to make sure. Um, it, it, I'm off the antidepressants. I haven't had the ideations uh, or anything. I'm even getting off the antidepressants because the, the – ADHD medication has helped so much keep me focused uh, and I'm not perfect I mean I'm 49 years old and still trying to figure it out so but I'm 49 years old so I'm lucky to be 49 the next thing I can achieve because I have with depression you have so much self-doubt as I said before self-loathing um, I felt that achieving makes me feel good I can succeed at something and so by doing everything I could in a variety of arenas a variety of areas then that will keep me alive I have something to focus on. Uh, the big picture was studies, school. I was an A student. Um, sports. I was, 
I lived in a small town, 2,000 people, so there wasn't a lot of athletic competition. So I it was a little bit better than everyone else and a little bit taller. Um, my brothers are 6'7 and 6'5, and I'm the runt of the family. So basketball was natural, right? So you could be good at basketball, uh, uh, and you could, you, you could do good things, or you could achieve. And I was, at a young age, I was able to... Um, I have a hard time saying this because it sounds like I'm, I'm, I'm showboating or, or it sounds like that I'm bragging, but you know, I was the best player in my class, you know, especially young. And so in junior, we called it junior high then, I, I could be the star athlete. In high school, it, it continued. I graduated with 63 kids from high school, so I had a small class. So I had that opportunity to, to, to achieve. Baseball was my other passion, uh, and baseball is actually the sport I was better at. Um, went to college. Uh, um, I played for a real small town. Nobody ever heard of me, just like this running for Senate. Nobody heard of me, but when I went and played baseball and they saw what I could do, uh, then people took notice. Uh, um, and so that was the other part, achieving through sports. I was... In school government, in eighth grade, I was class president. In my sophomore year in high school, student government, I was student body treasurer. I was in the National Honor Society, became that president. I was president of my senior class. Uh, the awards, the whatever I could do to separate myself, what I tried for. And I held the job down since I was in the fifth grade. So I, would, I was working in a restaurant from fifth grade uh, until I turned 16, and then I got a job at the car dealership because I had my driver's license. So there was never a dull moment. If if you're not doing anything, that's when depression hits. Uh, and so doing everything I could, I got my pilot's license at 19 when I went to college. Um, so all those things and trying to keep pushing, keep pushing. I do remember in 04, 05, uh, in 03, she, my ex said, you need to get help. You need to find a therapist. And so I did. That was that was helpful. And I remember listening to sports radio at the time, and Terry Bradshaw was on speaking with whoever channel, whatever, whoever it was. But Terry Bradshaw came out and talked about his own depression. Terry Bradshaw, quarterback for Pittsburgh Steelers, won four Super Bowls, you know, very successful and very depressed. And for him to come out and say that on the radio, it made me feel like, okay, I'm not alone. But I still felt alone, and I still had a long way to go. That was a turning point for me, knowing there were other people out there. Really a change for me when Tara came into my life uh, and I wasn't single. Uh, I Being single from 05 to 09 was hard. I went through a relationship every three months. Uh, I couldn't keep a relationship. I, I couldn't focus on it. Uh, I had two Jack Russell Terriers that 
uh, my ex and I uh, shared custody of. Uh, we didn't have kids, we had dogs, and I never had a dog in my life. And, and um, she wound up giving up custody when she remarried and had kids. And so I had these two dogs that I had to live for, is the way I looked at it when I was single. Uh, they were like my children, and uh, meeting Tara and, and finding someone who made me happy, someone who could understand me, understand where I came from. We grew up 20 miles apart in Iowa, but we met here in Colorado. We knew a lot of the same people. And having that connection with somebody helped me. And, and she's a school counselor now, so it really helps a lot too. So <laughs> with some of her, her ways to uh, guide me, it uh, really helps uh, with her advice. Uh, but finding someone that accepted me for me and, and that, was, that was huge for me. But don't forget, I was going through therapy from 2003 to 2018. Uh, Tara met my therapist until she retired. Uh, my therapist has texted me recently, you know, over the last six months, the, the retired therapist, you know, how proud she is of me. And it feels like a, a mother being proud because all the work she did with me and we went through and, and uh, the ups and downs of me f firing her, you know, going through that lull and, and saying, this isn't working, and, and I don't think you're really helping me. And you go through those lows, and you got to stick with the, 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 the help. She, she stuck with me and uh, saw me through until she could hand me off and know that I was in a good place. Uh, 2018, 2017, I was in a lot better place. Tara and I were married in 2011, and... Uh, that I just kept growing and kept getting better. It doesn't mean I'm not, doesn't mean I'm cured. doesn't mean I don't have my low points, which I've continued to have and go through, but having a partner helps. Well, the purpose of counseling to me was getting out issues that I had kept deep inside of me and, and finding a release for things that had bothered me. But it was also, and continues to be, a way to create strategies to get out, to, to live positively. Uh, counseling isn't just about going and exploring the darkest moments of your life and, and unloading. That's part of it. But the other part is, how do you live? How do you deal with life going forward when... There's more uh, wrenches thrown in the way. You know, when there's more obstacles th thrown in the way, how are you going to handle those? When you feel the depression coming on or when you feel the lows, when you feel the self-loathing, the, the suicidal ideation, the visualization of what uh, self-harm, how do you get out of it? And that's... The key to counseling is the tools that you can learn and the strategies you can attain to regulate those emotions. It's, it's something that 
you have to use. And, and, and sometimes it can be hard because you don't want to do it. You don't want to exercise. You don't, you don't want to do the things that you know you should be doing that the counselor says. Because some of it is, I don't want somebody to tell me what to do. That's part of the depression. You know, or that's part of our, our diagnosis is to be obstinate. Okay, and you know whatever, whatever you go through. I don't want people telling me what to do. I grew up my whole life. I didn't want people telling me what to do. Then I have a therapist that is giving me ideas. My wife giving me ideas, and your initial reaction is to, to, to put up a wall, and you have to know that there is a way to break that wall down. That there's a way to live. And, and using those tools that you can get from a, a qualified therapist is, is something that can get you from one day to the next and keep building. I used to coach. Uh, I was a high school teacher for uh, three years full-time, two years as a sub. And over those five years, I coached uh, high school. Uh, I coached uh, girls basketball. I had a team my very first year of coaching, I was probably 22 years old, and they were awful, just awful, and just trying to teach them. They were freshmen and trying to teach them how to dribble, you know, basics of the game. But they were, they were willing to learn. And I told them, your, your success here is measured in steps or rungs of a ladder. doesn't mean we're going to win every game. We'll be lucky to win one game. But what did you do to improve from the last practice or the last game to the next game? And to me, in our depression, my depression and my mental illness is what am I doing to improve to make myself better? What am I doing to, to climb that ladder so that I can cope? I'm going to fall off that ladder, ladder every now and then. I'm going to drop a few rungs. But how can I get back up? And, and those strategies of, of getting outside, you know, simple things, right? Uh, to to finding things that in life are bigger than you and where can you make a difference and and that's why I ran for office to help me with my own treatment I guess <laughs> I became a teacher I knew I wanted to be a teacher when I was in the fifth grade I'm either a major league baseball player or a teacher and it's because I thought I I could help people I love to coach I love to teach I taught history but I didn't become a teacher to become a coach I, I disliked it so much that when people found out I was a history teacher then they would ask what do you coach well I wasn't there just to be a coach I was there to be a teacher and I was fortunate to make an impact, to get thank yous, to get presents. From after my first year, I had kids come up to me and thank them and thank me, excuse me, for being their teacher after my first year. And the only gift I ever got as a teacher was a CD of Alanis Morissette, Jagged Little Pill. You know, they, these two boys came up to me afterwards, a junior and a sophomore, and saying I made a difference. And then the parents would come up to me and say I made a difference. And, and, I was 23, 24, 25 years old, and I felt, that's, that's what I want to do. I want to make a difference. I want people to know that you know, I'm here to help. When I moved to Colorado in 99, 
I got out of teaching uh, because so many different reasons. I just wanted to change. I think it's part of the depression, part of the ADHD. I, I was teaching in a small school, didn't want to teach in a big school, didn't want to make that change. And I was tired of being broke. And so decided to get into financial planning. That part of me with financial planning was helping people. I've always been in that cycle of helping people. How can I make a difference in a person's lives? Getting a, Starting my own company in 2014, I think it was, uh, starting my own company allowed me to get away from the sales side that so many people get into financial planning do. They sell something, sell something. I wasn't selling anything. I was educating just in a different way. Maybe I was selling myself, but... I wanted to make sure that I, I help people. And my clients aren't multimillionaires. 90% and above are teachers or retired teachers are related to teachers because that's who I knew and that's who I could relate to. So it was easier having that conversation. Jump forward from that to politics was the same, same reason I got into politics. How can I help people? How can I make a difference in people's lives? So that whole transition from teaching to financial planning to being a politician or I, I don't like saying that honestly I, I don't think of myself a politician to to running for office is because I want to make a difference and I want to help people I don't have goals beyond this office I was tired of being a Monday morning quarterback and complaining I think I have some good ideas uh, some specific ideas and some things that I can advocate for. And that's why I got into politics, because that's it. I, I want to advocate for people, uh, and, and I'm trying to do it. Not very many people get into this. A lot of people talk about getting into it, but to actually do this is hard. Running a campaign, and then I, the, the campaigning was the easy part. And I did that for three years for two different offices. but. I, I did not celebrate jumping up and down and, and just celebrate when I found out I won on election night because I knew the hard part was coming. And the hard part is legislating and trying to solve people's problems and help them solve their own problems, you know, give them a way to do that. And, and it's not easy. I feel like I made the biggest difference so far, maybe the biggest difference I'll make in my whole time and whole tenure by advocating for people with uh, mental health uh, issues, mental health problems, and and finding ways to bring support. And, th and like I said, it's just, it's all linear to me. It's how can I help? I had a meeting with my aide this morning and said, we're through this first session almost, and it's been a whirlwind because of COVID. We started and we stopped and we came back and everything is been different than any other session out there. Uh, last year's session would come close because of what they went through to stop and start and then come back for COVID. And so I haven't found what you would call the normal day yet. And I want to establish what does my day look like? So for someone with ADHD, someone with depression, what I've done in my adult life since I moved to Colorado is probably the wrong thing to do because 
I've gotten away from structure, being my own uh, boss and running my own business. You know, there's no nine to five. There's no one place to go every day. And so coming down to the Capitol, I have a place to go. And I, I want to get up every morning at the same time or have my alarm go off at the same time. My wife is really focused on in creating that structure. So I, alarm goes off at 5.15. I usually hit the uh, snooze a few times. I get up and get dressed to get the kids, wake them up, have breakfast. And I try to be out the door by 7, 7.30. And trying to establish just that routine. And I think anybody with mental illness, uh, uh, anybody with depression or ADHD, it's important to have a routine, something you can rely on. Because once that routine is gone, it, it, uh, it makes life a lot harder and trying to bring it back. So for me, it's developing that routine. Every, every day I have a schedule. I'm still working on it. It's not perfect. There are senators here I just marvel at, at stuff that they can get done and, and how, how great they've done. And I have actually gone up and asked a couple of them, what's your routine like? What do you do? Because I'm also running a business at the same time. I still have my job. I still talk to clients. Uh, after, was it last week, two weeks ago, a client's wife passed away in March and he needed to meet. So at four o'clock on a Thursday, I left here, drove straight to his house and met with him. So I'm still doing that. I have an assistant with my company uh, to keep my company uh, running along. So finding that balance, it's not easy, but, but trying to make sure I have a routine every day helps. And I think that's for anything in life is that what, what is it that can keep me that I can look at every day that I, I should be doing. I've gone into some dark places where I get off that routine. Uh, you know, this is going to sound awful, but I'm a gamer. And I like to play video games. I grew up. I, we had the first Pong, you know, as a kid. And we had Atari and then Nintendo, then Sega, and then Sony PlayStation. You know, so I'm a PlayStation guy. I'm on the fourth version. You know, I've had every single one of them. And... With someone with ADHD and depression, those games can be an escape, but they can also suck you in, and you got to be able to turn them off. And those are the biggest, hardest conversations you know, that I have sometimes with my wife. It's just like I'm just playing one game. You were you've been down here for three hours, and you don't know three hours is gone. And you try to wait till the kids go to bed, but. When you can get sucked into those black holes, and that's what the importance of having a routine, getting exercise, doing everything that you need to do to, to keep yourself healthy. It's okay to delve into some of those things, some of those escapisms. I've never been into drugs, um, never been into those substance abuse, you know, substances that, that cause the escape. It, it's, it's something that you got to be careful of. Uh, I started playing guitar 15 years ago, just decided I wanted to pick it up. And so I've had an acoustic and now I've electric and, and I try to do something, something like that to me is productive instead of gaming. <laughs> but then I get the guitar game, you know, that teaches me how to play the guitar on the PlayStation kind of thing. But it's, you know, it's, uh, it's finding that 
and getting out of that escapism, I guess, going back to that and, and making sure that that what you're doing is, is positive. It's not taking you down. Like you said, you get to this dark place. Okay, what can bring me back up? For me, picking up the guitar really helps, you know, really helps me get back up because I feel like I'm doing, I'm not wasting time. If my wife was sitting here right now, she would say, I have an addiction to gaming when I get pulled into it. Uh, I, do, I have an addictive, addictive personality, but it's not substance abuse. It's other things. And that's, that's a sign of mental illness and, and trying to be able to unplug and, and finding other ways and other things. Uh, ADHD does pull me away. There's, there's a lot, I mean, even now that I'm going through and have gone through over the last two years that I want uh, people to understand that I, I might be here, I, I might seem like a success from the outside, that I have it all together, but you know, open the door, open the closet, pull the, pull the curtains back. Uh, it, it's, it, it can be very rough and, and, and you want to go and hide sometimes. And I think we all have that, whether it's uh, alcohol, drugs, or gaming, uh, we need to make sure that we're, we stay out into the light. And that's, that's what I have to keep doing. It won't, it won't go away. I imagine myself someday as an 88 year old man still trying to play video games and say, I'm retired. You know, I got nothing to do. I, nothing to give in my life. Leave me alone. I'm going to just stick down here in the basement and play my games. Well, I, I look at myself at age eight right now because our daughter, our oldest, is eight turning nine next week. And... She's experiencing a lot of the things I experienced as a kid, but went undiagnosed. And we were able to get help right away when we realized we were having struggles. And we family counselor. And so what I've been telling her is fly the plane. Fly the plane. Know that the world is bigger than what you have right here. And, and the reason I say fly the plane is because as a pilot, when we go through training, and the, the engine, let's say we, we prepare, prepare for emergencies. And if something goes wrong in the airplane, you get focused on the emergency. Let's say it's a circuit breaker or something, and you forget to look out the window. And you forget to keep the, wing, the, the wings level. You forget to keep your altitude and your airspeed when something goes wrong. And so uh, what I've told her and what I try to tell myself is fly the plane. What do I need to do? Even those are problem that's really affecting me right now. How can I keep my emotional stability? And that's what I would tell my eight-year-old self because that's what I told, tell our, our eight-year-old daughter. How do you keep your stability? How do you know that? I shouldn't say how. Keep your, keep your stability. Look past today know that there's bigger issues and bigger problems. I, my mom pounded that into my head all the time. That was her way of helping me get through depression was there are worse things in life. Still didn't help a lot, okay, because 
when you're stuck in depression as an eight-year-old, you don't know those worst things. But trying to get them to understand uh, and get the, the bigger things out there. So I would tell my eight-year-old self, fly the plane. This 31-year-old me was in a dark, dark place. Um, I'd have to I, I tell the 31-year-old me that it gets better that you're not alone, that you're going to have to go through some struggles before you realize what you need, but also don't, don't be afraid to ask for help. When I first came out with depression, I told my parents and my brothers, and they all live in Iowa still, one of my brothers said, well, what do you have to be depressed about? And I don't know. It's chemical imbalance it's it's some of the things that have happened to me in my life, but you have to ask for help and you have to seek that help. I, uh, when I was 32 going through divorce and I had a low point where I got in my car and it was about 2 o'clock in the morning. The dogs, I didn't have the dogs, they were with my ex. So I had nothing to cling to. And I just thought I'm going to end it here. And I had my cell phone. And I just, the darkest of dark thoughts, right? And what can I do? And for some reason, I went through my cell phone and I found my therapist number and I called her. Two o'clock in the morning. And she answered. And I asked for help, and, and, and she gave me that help that I needed in that moment. And I was fortunate because I had health insurance to help cover my sessions. So my sessions with my therapist was always a copay of $15, $20. And I would be going weekly or biweekly, twice a week, um, especially in my lowest points. And she was able to give me that lifeline. And my 31-year-old self needs to have that lifeline. And I tell that 31-year-old, that 32-year-old, ask for help. Don't be alone. And that's, that's what I would tell them. It's a bill that I didn't work, that's been in the works. 988 is, is a bill that's been in the works. It's a consortium of people. I mean, there was, there was a study group done. There was county commissioners, people working together. It was, became a, a federal law uh, last year to create 988 so that it was a, a universal number for mental illness. Uh, it, it's, it's titled Suicide Prevention Hotline because you call it when you're, you're feeling suicidal. I envision it as being the number for, for anyone who needs to talk, even if they're not suicidal, but they're, they're dealing with mental illness. They're, they're dealing with the lulls. They're, they're looking for guidance, looking for help, looking for support. And this number, not only will it be the triage to keep people from harming themselves in the moment, but it will connect people to this multitude of services we have in the state. 
it will connect them and coordinate with the 211 system. If you don't know what 211 is, 211 is a, a also a national number, but localized for services that you you can get if you are looking for mental health services, if you're looking for help with rent, if you're if you're looking for help with unemployment, uh, anything that you think government should be helping you with, health insurance. Where are these services? That's what 211 does. Well, 988 is going to coordinate with 211. And then 988 is also creating a crisis response teams, local crisis, regional crisis response teams in this state that can go out and help. Uh, we, we have such a problem uh, with law enforcement helping people in mental health because they're not trained to do it. God bless, law, God bless them. They, they're doing everything they can within their own skill set, Right. But when it comes to mental health, they're not trained. It's not their wheelhouse. 988 will be the wheelhouse, the crisis response team. These will be the people that will be trained to deal with those with the mental health emergencies. These, these are the people we will call first uh, and, and not worry about the escalation that could happen when a, when a law enforcement officer comes out there uh, and and they've been trained to do one thing, and we're trying to get them to do another, and that's not been in their training. So I, I think it's a transformative policy. I've said this before. It's kind of the catchphrase, the catchword nowadays is transformative. And 988 will be transformative. And Senator Simpson and I are, are the two people that are bringing it across the finish line. So many people have come before us. Uh, Mo Keller, the head of Mental Health Colorado, has done tons of work on this. Mental Health Colorado has done tons of work. Uh, Office Behavior Health, so many other people. Uh, we're just the ones that put our name on it and told our told my story and told people about the bill. And so far it's passed in the Senate. It's gone to the House, passed in the Senate unanimously. And I'm pretty sure we'll see the same in the House. Now, forewarned here, it will create a fee on your phone bill. Okay, there will be up to a 15 cent to 30 cent fee on every phone line. Uh, but that's the way we can get to pay for this service for everyone here in the state. And uh, it will start officially July of 2022 when the bill passes. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, my name is uh, Chris Colker. I'm state senator for Senate District 27. Uh, which encompasses all of the city of Centennial, parts of Inglewood, Greenwood Village, and Foxfield. Uh, it's South Metro Denver. Uh, 100,000, over 100,000 registered voters. And it's a, a district that people think of the suburbs. Yes, we are the suburbs. But it's very, very diverse from east to, to west. And it's a position that I, I'm honored to have. I'm honored to represent people. I try to be as thoughtful as possible in every bill that's out there uh, and think of how our legislation, to me, the first thing I look at is how does a piece of legislation affect children? How does it affect the, the uh, developmentally disabled community and affect all those people who have historically been underrepresented? That's the first thing I think about with any bill, any piece of legislation. Uh, and then I move on from there. I, I want to make sure that I am, I am representing and helping people uh, in this community and in the entire state.
and that's that's my my mission statement. I do want to say, when it comes to my own story in mental health, I'm not trying to glamorize it or glorify it. I've been very coy with the details of, of what I've gone through because I don't want anybody to grab on to say who's going through a mental health illness or a mental health emergency. And I I don't want them to, to grab on and say, uh, get any ideas from me. I want them, I want people to see that you can overcome, that with the right help, the right treatment, the right guidance and support system, you can overcome anything. It's not easy. It's a lot of work. It's something that I have accepted will never go away in my life, that the darkest moments, the dark, darkest thoughts will be there and will always be there. It's how I react to them. It's how I cope with them and how I live my life in dealing with those, those thoughts and emotions and turning them into a positive. And it's something that I will continue to, to strive for and, and support and pray to God that I can be a good father, a good husband, a good state senator, financial planner, and just an overall good person that when my day comes that people think that he did everything he could to, to uh, reach out, even though it was hard. And that dealing with mental illness isn't a death sentence. It's not something you have to do alone. And as a male, <laughs> it's okay to say you need help. For more information and to donate, please visit youdon'tfightalone.org. The You Don't Fight Alone podcast is a production of You Don't Fight Alone Incorporated, produced and engineered by James Fisher and Keaton Lycom. The information presented by You Don't Fight Alone is not intended as medical advice. If you have mental health questions, please talk to a mental health professional.